Welcome back to uh, the afternoon workshop. Uh, I'm Dan Gilmore, fellow with the Berkman Center uh, and uh, director of Center for Citizen Media, and uh, I'm really mainly introducing our uh, important facilitators as opposed to me, and they are, sorry, Dave Harris and Darby B. Christopher, who uh, are here with the law school and have uh, many interesting thoughts about uh, how to extend community after the thing is over. And uh, we also thought that when we were talking that we wanted to flip it around because we figured there's a lot of uh, undoubtedly more knowledge in the room away from us than there is up here about this issue. So we're going to extract from you uh, what you know about this or what you think about this. And maybe by the end of this, we'll have four or five good recommendations on how we would proceed that will bring back to the, uh, to, to the entire group later on. The first thing we'd like to do is ask everyone to introduce themselves uh, and with your affiliations and then uh, if you have, if you want to say why you're here, that's very powerful. We'll, we'll yank it out of you later on. Let's start up here. I'm um, Tom Hyrie, Yale University Library, and I'm here. That's a good question why I'm here. Um, I'm interested in sort of how all of these issues face not only libraries, but special collections, libraries, and archives. So, my name is Susanna Vinamali. I work at Tufts and an archivist at the University Archives. I'm Joan Krizak. I'm University Archivist and Head of Special Collections at Northeastern University. I'm Megan Smith Marinoff. I'm a Tufts University Archivist. And I'm here partially because I want to spend a little more time thinking about how to document our university events. I'm Christina. I'm a second year college student at Harvard College and I'm a Harvard College. I'm Robin Pringle. I'm a graduate of the Ed School at Harvard in 2000, and I've been consulting in educational program design and development. I'm interested in challenges and opportunities for justice in education in the globalizing world. Uh, hi, I'm Michael Feldman, and I teach at Boston University. I'm Steve McDonald. I do software development at Tufts University. Hi. And this is a fellow theater. I come from Spain, and I'm just a researcher in Hi, I'm Christine McCurdy. I'm a journalist finishing up a degree at uh, Divinity School in Religion and Society. I'm interested in community building. Um, I'm Ruth Tucker. I'm a librarian in Harvard University Libraries, and just interested in how we can make collections usable and known outside our university. Uh, hi, I'm Priscilla from the uh, Charles Houston Institute for Race and Justice. I'm Kelly, I also work at the Charles Houston Institute. I'm Colin Bitsky, I'm the event coordinator for the Charles Houston Institute. It's one of the organizers of the Vetscott Conference that we're talking about. I'm here to uh, be involved in the discussion and thinking about some ways uh, to take what we did at the conference and the media that came out of it um, and turn it into more useful products that we here to share my thoughts and hear everyone else's thoughts on how uh, we're going to do that. Um, 
Uh, David Langmois, I work for Harvard Law School Media Services. I'm instructional media developer. Hi, uh, Mark Delsey, uh, information technology geek of all trades, uh, Harvard Extension, uh, class of 2007, and Second Life Addict. I'm John Francis, uh, Harvard School of Public Health Institution Review Board, and from the Cambridge Climate Protection Committee, the City of Cambridge. I'm Nolan Bui. I teach at Kennedy School of Government uh, courses on new media and democracy and issues involving digital divide, among other things. Uh, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. Right. I'm Blaise Green. I'm the web intern for the Harvard Alumni Magazine. I'm David Wisniewski. I'm a web architect at Brandeis University, and I've been interested in um, sort of academic research in the online community for, I don't know, eight years or so. I'm Andrew Hubble, Network Systems Manager at the Arnold Albion at Harvard University. And I've been interested in this for an equally amount of time. I keep waiting. Is it really ready for prime time? Um, I'm, I keep, I'm imagining I'll look back at this in five years and I'll have a better idea. Because my predictive abilities for technology are just appalling. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, I'd really like to see something come out of this. I have something to, to grab onto and see how useful is this, particularly in education, as opposed to entertainment. I'm Scott McLeod. I teach courses on society and information technology. And in a way, continuing on the conversation that uh, Charles Nesson and Becca Nesson and Jean Koo started last fall, 2006, in Psychic Life on Berkman. I'm going to teach a course this summer, starting Tuesday, June 5th at 7 p.m., on society and information technology. At large participation, welcome. Jane Kua, fellow at the Berkman Center, and here to hopefully briefly uh, channel Charlie, because he can't be with us. Uh, my interest in this topic is in how to um, turn just the knowledge that we generate in these conferences into something that keeps on going in terms of the community. I've run courses where we've tried to turn the course into some kind of community that goes before and after the class, and it's a very, very big challenge. A couple of people came in after we started. Uh, uh, I'm Matthew Battles. I, uh, I'm the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. I write about the history of, of uh, libraries, archives, and, and uh, publishing uh, as well. And, uh, uh, and, so, and so I'm very interested in how, um, in, in how, in how the university has, has uh, uh, forged or, or denied connections with other communities historically speaking and what that has to say to us today. I'm, uh, I'm Randy Stern. I'm from the Harvard University Library and I work in the Office of Information Systems and I'm interested in how uh, how social communities can be embedded within library uh, websites and I'm also interested in race and justice. Okay, and who else just walked in? Um, my name is Michael Rand. I'm a MBA student in marketing, and I'm uh, interested in uh, having gone to conferences. One issue that I've always been curious about is how to continue the conversation after. So. Do you have something you want to take on the control after? Oh. I mean, I can do it now. Where do you want to do it? It will fit better. I suppose after you talk about the first about Sure. Okay. Um, I'm the manager of media services. Again, my name is Darby DeChristopher. And um, we run anything AV related in the uh, law school community. So we were heavily involved in the Joint Scott Conference. And um, what Professor Ogletree had asked us to do is 
um, set up an interview type room so that he could grab people from the conference, bring them in, and sit them down and ask them a few questions. And the idea is to take those interviews and eventually put them on a website, jump in on saying anything correct, and put them on a website so you can see different points of view on the same question. But we did bring some of that media to show um, if anyone is interested in seeing. Would you like to see it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Could I, uh, sure. I think one thing I'd like to do before we do that is give a little background on the conference we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that was my job, so let me do that. <laughs> and then uh, uh, I think it, it provides the context that we need for what we're trying to do. And uh, you know, I have to begin by saying, you know, who the Charles, what the Charles Hamilton Institute for Race and Justice is, aside from mouthful. Uh, and it is an institute that's devoted to pursuing the legacy of our namesake. And that legacy, uh, you know, simply is how do you combine uh, various forms of knowledge uh, and, and, uh, and expertise uh, to promote uh, equity, fairness, and justice. Uh, he was an attorney by training. He was one of the great attorneys of the last century. Uh, most of us know him for uh, being the, uh, the, the driving force behind Brown versus Board of Education, but he was a man of, of many talents uh, who pursued a legal career that had him engaging not only with other attorneys, jurists, but also with academics uh, and, uh, and people. Uh, and so the Houston Institute is designed <coughs> to try to, to do all of those things as well, to, to bring into our work and our conversation uh, and our undertakings uh, people, you know, attorneys, jurists, academics, activists, um, and, and the Dred Scott Conference itself, I think, or uh, we think it, is, it, is, it was, an exemplary, was exemplary in that sense. And I don't know how many, did any of you have a chance to attend it? So, I mean, I, I mean, I'd be curious, if I ask you kind of how you would characterize what happened, what would you, how would you characterize the conference? And not to put you on the spot, not to put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, historically important um, and showing us the relevance of that history to today. Okay, that, that, that's good. And I think that was, that was certainly one of the messages. The other thing I would say, and I invite you all to visit our website, you know, the webcast is there for the entire thing. You can look at it and see what happened. One of the things that happened, though, that was really interesting and unique about it was that it wasn't uh, kind of unilinear. It wasn't just a bunch of people standing up at a podium and sitting on a dais talking. There were academic panels, there were academicians there, the presentations were varied, uh, there were art historians there, uh, and there were, there, were, there were panels of real live people uh, who survived uh, uh, event, historical events of importance in terms of our thinking and understanding about history. There was the use of film and video. And then finally the kind of, the kind of crowning uh, touch was this uh, mock trial presided over by Chief, by, keep on elevator, uh, by Justice Breyer, in, in which we as a group considered the, whether, whether the Dred Scott decision was inevitable, okay? And, and it was a lot of stuff. Uh, it was a lot of, uh, of intellectual activity, but there was a lot of emotional connect between uh, the people who were involved. And I, I emphasize all of that because from, from our perspective, 
uh, it, it's that complexity that made it great. And that makes the challenge of keeping it going even greater. I also think, though, that it makes the opportunity greater because there are many different ways, many different points of entry uh, that we can have to understanding what is, in fact, uh, in some sense, a dry historical moment for some. I, it's not dry to me, but, uh, uh, and it's links to where we are today. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's what, that's our, uh, that's our text for today, as it were. Uh, that's what we're working with, and I think that's what I want us to think about. And, you know, I invite you to ask me questions, detailed questions about any of that content if you choose. So, having said that, I think maybe we should. Tom, did you want to add anything as far as in the, before the conference began and how we worked together to plan the recordings or anything? Sure. Um, Certainly one of the uh, important elements of all the events that we're doing um, at the Institute are, um, is to make them you know, widely accessible um, you know, for free on the internet, whether you physically be here or not. Um, so we do live webcasts of all of our events. Um, and we really wanted to, uh, in this case with the mock trial specifically, we really wanted to capture that um, in a new and different way, rather than just having you know the typical shot from the back of the room, um, we put a lot of time and thought into you know multiple cameras, different angles to really try to capture it as an action event, um, and not the standard sort of uh, you know C-SPAN style um, single camera shot. Um, so that was one of the one of the important angles that we worked on from a media AV standpoint. Um, and then the other, uh, as Darby mentioned, and the you know, the clips um, that she brought. We started back in March with our first events of the semester, um, and, and uh, David may want to speak further to this, but one of, the, the Dred Scott Conference was also um, a launching pad for us for this uh, broader study on the issue of citizenship. Um, so all of the guest speakers that we brought in uh, this, this spring semester um, were participated in these, these short interviews that we did where we would ask people a little bit about their background and their, and their you know, their, their personal, you know, work history, but also um, every person was asked the same question, what do you think about citizenship? Sort of a broad, um, broad question, and that's, so that's the project we're working on now, building towards another uh, major conference next spring in May um, on the issue of citizenship and sort of taking, uh, what we started with Dred Scott, building it towards something bigger and, toward, and towards something uh, very, you know, currently relevant in, uh, in a lot of different areas. Um, and so one of the projects with all these interviews to try to figure out, you know, okay, we have all this, we have hours and hours and hours now of recorded material, so, um, you know, what's the next step with that? What do we do with it? Do we, you know, put clips on the internet, package DVDs, you know, create DVDs, so there's all these, there's all these different aspects of sort of what we can do with this wealth of media that we've collected now, and, and I think that's that's one of the big questions I think you know for, for me at least today is you know what's the best way to you know to package this material and translate it to make it accessible and useful for for different audiences, um, different demographics, different age groups, um, people at different levels of legal knowledge. Um, what are all the possible forms of media that we can that we can turn this raw footage into, um, and, and then to use it to reach 
people that aren't necessarily looking for it. I mean, anybody can go on Google and you know type in Harvard Law School Dred Scott Conference or something related to that and find our information. But how do we make it useful and accessible to people who weren't necessarily looking for it in the first place, and therefore turning it into um, you know a uh, sort of a you know a social action or educational uh, tool? If you type Dred Scott into Google, how far down? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know, if you just type Dred Scott, I'm not sure. Um, but, it might come up. Yeah. 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 So there's one of the other questions. If, so, you know, the people that are looking for it, how do we? You, you want to be you want to be in the first page without a question, right? Yes. Yeah, you you have not made the first page. Okay, so we're part of our part of our strategy today is we're going to figure out how to make sure that by two months from now they're in the first page. Well, yes and no. Be careful. I, I want to be careful about it because I want to. I, it, it, if you do that when you get there, I want you to get have something. <laughs> so, I mean, aside from what's there. So, I, but, but I, there are two pieces to that. Yeah, with the proviso that what's there when you get there is really worth the trouble. Okay, I, I agree. And the transcribe the interviews uh, into full text so they can be indexed? And not yet. So, if you do that, then you look at all that stuff and you have a better chance of it. One of my questions that you were looking for was whether or not the Dred uh, Scott decision was in, inevitable, right? Well, that was the question that was put to the trial. I, I'm just curious as to whether or not uh, it was disclosed at the, the conference that uh, five or six of the Supreme Court justices at the time were themselves slave owners and she probably should have recused themselves, but didn't. Therefore, the uh, trial facts was biased. Well, no, that came out. We can get into the, the content. I mean, that did come up, and, and, but that's part of, you know, from John Payton and others' arguments was that's part of what made it inevitable. That's part of what made the decision inevitable was that the people, that they were human beings, those people came with their own histories, their perspectives, their ideologies, and events. And, uh, but they can apply the same rule of law to themselves as they would have a lesser judge. But, but it was, you know, it, it, it kind of, in the historical moment, the, the, that's, that was the hand that had been dealt. So, I mean, that was part of the debate, yes. That was part of the debate. Okay. So, um, again, we shot this in a room in a black limbo style, which means that um, the only thing that is lit is the person themselves, so it's a black background. So, and it doesn't matter when we shoot these or where we shoot these, that they all look exactly the same. Um, and I believe that was the whole point, so that you couldn't tell that this was shot in this room, this was shot outside, so that it looked very, very similar. Um, so I'm just going to play this from the beginning, just to show you a quick glimpse of it, but then I'll get to the citizenship question that was asked of everyone. Well, Kathleen Cleaver, welcome to the Charles Humphrey Houston Institute for Race and Justice. We're glad to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to talk to you about four things. First, uh, you've had an amazing history. Uh, and one of the issues I'd like to talk to you about is how did you get involved uh, in the Black Panther Party? Well, the Black Panther Party came into being in about 1966. In 1966, I was working in SNCC. Uh, I was part of the Black Power Movement. I joined SNCC right in June of 1966. I was a 
student at Barnard, and I had the opportunity to become part of SNCC, which is something I wanted to do for the last five years, having watched the student movement unfurl in the South, because that's my home. I was from Alabama. I had grown up with parents who were engaged in civil rights activism well before I was born. My father had been active in putting me into the white primary in Texas. My, he was involved in community development work. My mother had been involved in the Southern Negro Youth Conference. So I was living in Tuskegee when we were boycotting because of the uh, refusal of the whites to allow blacks to register to vote and working for the registration. So to see what the Black Panther Party was about in uh, <clears throat> the 60s, the way it exploded on the scene was very appropriate from my perspective because I sensed in the black power, a call for black power, a sense of a call for self-determination, self-respect. Um, it was a challenge to what I would have interpreted as a form of colonialism. I wouldn't have said it that way at that time, but as a young person, my father was in the foreign service and I lived in countries that had become independent after being colonized by white powers. And so I had the sense that we as black people didn't have to be dominated by white powers. We should have a means of determining our own political interests. That was what the Black Panther Party meant. That's not exactly how I joined. I ended up joining because I had met Eldridge Cleaver at a SNCC concert in Atlanta. And after I met him in March, Huey Newton, the leader of the Black Panther Party, was shot and almost killed in an altercation with the Oakland police in October. And at that point, the Black Panther Party was sort of in a state of collapse. And Eldridge reached out to me and said, you've got to come out here, you've got to help us. And the Black Power Movement viewed the Black Panther Party as part of that movement. So I was actually moving from one place, this national office of SNCC in the Black Power Movement, to the Bay Area, uh, another part of the Black Power Movement, because Eldridge and I had actually fallen in love, and I was willing to go out there and work with the, uh, really, we have to call it the remnants of the Black Panther Party. There were a handful of people out of jail after they had visited the state capital of California with uh, shotguns to protest the building. And guns were legal in California. Well, it was a completely legal right. demonstration. But, but everybody yeah. looks at that and says, look at those violent black women and men going to the capital of Sacramento. Well, that's because... So, um, we have a couple of choices here. The entire piece is about 17, it's probably 20 minutes. You could, we could watch the entire thing, or if you just want to see a snippet, see what we're talking about, and then move on. This is up on our website also. And I'm, I'm, the only unless people want to watch the entire yeah. thing, I was just going to fast forward to the citizenship question. Anyone who knows that? Okay. I can answer any technical questions about this. I have a hand in the production, so. You have this book called Target Zero uh, about Eldridge Cleaver's writings. What's the what does citizenship mean to you? And what do you think it should mean to all of us? Well, in the United States, citizenship has been fairly ambiguous. Uh, the country doesn't start out with any definition of citizenship, but citizenship has a crude uh, notion of racial privilege in the United States. 
which a huge, huge movement from the emancipation of slaves to the present is still engaged in defining. Uh, I think citizenship means the right to participate in determining your destiny, the right to choose and challenge how you're governed, and the right to be part of a democratic society. That's how I would see citizenship. Now, I would say there's probably easily 30%, if not more, of the United States citizens who don't have those rights. What do you mean? They're citizens, but they don't have citizenship rights? They don't have the full panoply of what I've just expressed as a right of citizen. Well, much of it has to do with their economic status. Uh, when you think of sharecroppers, pins, you know, Mexicans, blacks, uh, poor whites, they may be citizens, but they really don't have the ability because of their economic disadvantage to fully participate in self-government or to exercise any political say-so over their own lives. Uh, there was a time when the idea of women being participants in a democracy was preposterous. They were citizens, but they weren't citizens like men. So we have these uh, cleavages and these barriers that we are trying to overcome. But because, I think, because of the heritage of uh, a slave society in which the dominant class is extremely wealthy and completely white, because of that heritage, uh, we're being really, really slowed down in this notion of what the 14th Amendment says is that we're all entitled to equal protection of the law. That's, that's what, to me, a citizen should be, a person who's entitled to equal protection of the laws. And uh, maybe I'm an idealist, but I think that's what a citizen should have. Yeah, thank you very much, Catherine. Please. You know, typically, you know, you have an archive, you have a film archive, and it just sits there or something. But 
you know, I think some of those of you who are archivists kind of help us think through how you have a more dynamic uh, 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 collection and, and different ways that you can use some subject. Let me, uh, two, two quick things. Uh, I want to ask a question that we're going to come back to. I noticed at the end of that clip, it said copyright, the president and trustees of Harvard University or, or, or whatever, but copyright Harvard. Does that mean that someone could not take that video and use it in another work without your permission? I, let's not answer that right now, because there's a real issue here. This conference, in some ways, is about that. The second thing is we were asked by the organizers of the larger thing to ask for a volunteer in the room to take notes uh, about the conversation today, uh, which we would then uh, put on the, uh, I assume it will go up on the website at, at some point. Uh, so I'm, I'm asking for a volunteer. I'm just to stand here. Thank you all. I'm, I'm happy to do recording notes, but I wonder what would be the complete set. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're also getting, we're getting a recording as well. But just the sense of the flow, maybe the what you think of, about the major points. Sure. And I also plan to write stuff down on the blackboard as we start getting into our, our ideas for, for sure. what to do here. I want to rewrite them and then give them so that, that they would that, be readable. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the copyright question from the law school's point of view, um, and it's interesting. Um, there isn't necessarily concrete answers for this. Um, when we have speakers come, we have them sign releases that basically says that we can record them, we can reuse that recording in any way that the law school sees, sees fit. Um, we do have uh, the luxury of falling under the um, education umbrella and not for profit. So, because that can make things a little sticky if you're actually using someone's likeness um, and making money off of it, which we don't do. So that that helps. Um, we do put that copyright on the end of all the productions that we make. Um, it does not necessarily preclude people from repurposing it. Um, if we record something for the Berkman Center, the Berkman Center does own that footage. Um, we give them the raw footage, they can do whatever they want with it. But if we produce something, we put that tag on the, on the end of it. Um, and when we do um, stream uh, clips or stream productions, we make it so that they cannot be, tell me if I'm wrong, that they cannot be um, saved onto desktops and then sent wherever. You can watch the link, but you cannot copy and paste it and send it around the world. Is that correct? <laughs> there are ways of getting around it. That guy probably can. <laughs> yeah. There's always ways of getting yeah. around that. If, if, if information can be displayed on your computer, there's always some way to capture it. That, that's the short version. We make efforts to protect it. Yeah, content. right. So that it won't just end up you know, forwarded on to everyone and then end up all over. I mean, that's the idea, that you can watch it, but you cannot hold it in or alter it. Raising the question, why? why? Why don't you want people to reuse it in all kinds of interesting ways that you have to are bringing, bringing people back to you? We have professors on every end of the spectrum where professors like um, Charlie Nesson, who wants all the content out there, and then there are professors who don't want anything recorded at all. 
They do not want their likeness seen anywhere. They do not want anything recorded. They're very private with their um, intellectual property. And so since you do have that variety of professors, we have to go underneath what they want. So if we do record a class, it's under the um, understanding that it will be seen by the, the law school community and if people come to our website and view it, they can view it, but then they can't take it, edit it, change it, and send it around the world. Because I think that's the fear. And I think there's one, look, to me, very clearly, part of the reason that Kathleen Faber is willing to talk to us in a way and talk to us openly is some confidence that that footage is not going to wind up somewhere edited, the meanings of her words changed, <clears throat> and, and used in a way that, that was not her intention. So, you know, that, that's a problem, the, the problem of kind of, of access, and, and this is what you hear about, <laughs> access and privacy, you know, is at the, at the nub of that. And we do want as many people as possible to see and hear, and for, for us to be able to be a vehicle for, for her to be heard but not to be altered or abused. And I think that's, you know, if you can, if you can get it off, then, then you can alter it. Yeah. So. It's certainly good. Um, okay, we should, um, did you have something you wanted to put up in the chart? Yeah, did you have a one show? We have other examples of some recordings that we've done. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's interested in seeing them um, or whether or not it will further discussion. They're, they're different. There is another interview and there's also, um, from the Dred Scott, was the, the actual court proceeding? I think that was actually another event. Okay. We'd love to see that. Do we have the Dred Scott court proceeding? I don't have the trial scene. I think it's on their website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Do you want to you want to put up a minute of the trial scene? That might be something. Is that on the Better feel for what it says. Yeah. And one thing that's difficult about video as opposed to a webcast, where a webcast is live and it's instant gratification, where when we're doing these, these interviews, we have hundreds of hours of footage that have to be cut down, and that takes time. So you're not going to get the instant turnaround. So if you do want discussions from conferences to continue immediately afterwards, it's not going to be from edited video. Because it just is too time-consuming to actually turn around the video. You guys might be able to steer me in the right direction. 
But that well, one of the challenges is just in that. Yeah, we still want to edit this. First of all, we want to take some stuff off of this ourselves. And the challenge is we'll sort of cut right afterwards to get it into some sort of. In no way justified. You can't read that language and reach the. And the other piece is that anybody after can do exactly what he did. Right? And he's not only yeah, and it's true that you don't you can't, but you can't link to a part of this. I can't You bring up a very legitimate point, though, and um, one thing I have to mention is if the volume that our office processes in video and audio recording here at the law school. This is one of a lot of conferences. <laughs> Many. And we literally have a bear of a collection of video and audio. Um, I believe there was quite a bit of comments like that, like we should break this up this way, this way. Yeah. I looked to the conference organizers to give me direction there and to be a point person to filter that general editing process down so that it's manageable and we can respond. Some, something you could be assured of, and I think I'm uh, going Wait, further than what you said, if you put that out as a as MPEG-4 or something, that the world would do that editing for you. It right. would be broken down into, into its constituent pieces really quickly by other people and then reused in ways that would uh, all come back to you because of where it came from if it were licensed correctly. I think you're right. The editing is very powerful and you can change what someone said. Uh, depending on what points you want to get across, you can you can put things out of order. You can you know start comments later, and, and you do have a, a manipulation ability with the comments. But isn't that all part of the creative yes, process? Yes. I mean, it's like uh, sampling in a way. You put together a better product, and shouldn't be able to, people be able to hear something like this and have different translations, or are they stuck with yours? Right. Right now, they're stuck with ours. So you, you really want to exercise sort of control through infinity. But that's the fear, I think, of the people that give us permission to do with this footage. That's their fear that their comments will be, will be slighted or changed. But in your contract inviting them, can't you write a contract that gives you permission to um, use it? Oh, they do. They do sign a release saying that we can do whatever we want with it. But what, what I'm trying to get at is I think the fear of sending it out there and letting anyone edit how they want is that someone will edit in a certain way and then send that out and maybe the, the message will oh, be different from text? Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. People do this with cutting and pasting. Yeah. And you to live through that. Yeah, I mean, people do it all the time. I think we try to respect our clients as a video production service here. We try to respect confidentialities and relationships with the people we're videotaping. So we try to defer those kind of decisions onto the client that we're working for. But these are public forums. And I'm not saying that we can't do this, that we shouldn't do this. All I'm saying, but I'm, I mean, I think what we're talking about is kind of what are the risks. I mean, and, that, and, and that's one of them. It doesn't mean that we decide not to do it, or, you know, you know, and we're right. We're on to a really core issue right now, which is the risks of being open as opposed to prescription. And uh, this, this is cost? absolutely at the core right. of what we're going to get into. And part of your point, I mean, there, there's a cost to being restrictive. 
And then, and I, so that's, so I, you know, that is what we're talking about. What's the cost of being restricted versus the value? You have to the people in the video, too. Yeah. I think we also have to ask yeah. who are our clients and who are our constituencies. When before we get before we answer that, Gene wants to jump in with uh, Charlie uh, something from Charlie Nesson uh, before it becomes completely irrelevant. <laughs> conference, Charlie, uh, and, and for the time being, uh, Charlie was very involved in this conference, and of course is a professor here at the law school, but for the time being, let's consider Charlie just another participant in this conference, uh, which, which by all rights sounds incredibly uh, folks. Okay. Um, sounds amazing. Um, after the conference ended, Charlie was basically in the same position all of you are in, are going to be in, in about four hours, which is, the conference is done, now what? And, um, he walked away from this with a really strong feeling that there was still something that he wanted to say about uh, the Dred Scott decision that he felt wasn't really uh, out there quite yet. And that was to try to make the Dred Scott opinion and decision and all the ideas surrounding it accessible to the general public. And he looked at the case itself and said, you know, this is an incredibly dense, purposely dense, convoluted decision that was written to be opaque, as opaque as possible. What can we do so that it's something that everybody can understand and, and make available. So he basically did what I you would call a fanboy would do, and I, and I use the term with utter respect, because uh, somebody who's really attached to the idea and to the concepts uh, nowadays with, with digital remix culture is going to try to make their own thing, make their own piece of stuff, uh, and contribute to the culture, and contribute to the dialogue. And, and he basically created this work with the collaboration of uh, a couple of uh, a company called Owen Case Files, which did the audio for this and with some people who do uh, machinima uh, or video recordings of uh, 3D virtual worlds to put on what he calls, uh, well, let me show it to you and then I'll tell you what, what he was trying to do here. May it please the court. The plaintiff, Dred Scott, seeks a declaratory judgment from the Supreme Court of the United States that he was freed from slavery and is now a free citizen of the United States by reason of having been transported by his master to a free territory. More particularly, Scott was owned by his master as a slave in the slave state of Missouri. His owner traveled, taking Scott with him, to the free state of Illinois and to the free Northwest Territory of the United States of America and then back to Missouri. Scott claims that upon entering a free state or territory, he became a free citizen of the United States of America. This result necessarily follows from the fact that the state of Illinois has exercised its power to ban slavery within its borders, and from the fact that the Congress of the United States of America has banned slavery from its territories. Scott's owner, through his successor entitled, claims a right to travel throughout all states of the United States and its territories with his slave, and without forfeiting his property in his slave, in which case Scott never became a citizen and is not entitled to maintain this lawsuit. The issue before this court is whether Dred Scott is now a slave or a citizen of the United States. So the way Charlie describes this is the, the video equivalent of a graphic novel. And we've now come to respect graphic novels as, a, as not just comic books, but an art form in themselves that are, are, is a way to reach a mass audience. And the idea is 
it's precisely what we were just talking about. Is anybody really going to watch a three-hour discussion? And so what Charlie really wanted to do was remix everything that came out of this conference, create something new, but based on what was going on here. And um, basically, we couldn't really make use of the video resources that were available, so we just started from scratch. But that's not something that most people would want to do. So coming at this from the fanboy's perspective, from the participant's perspective, from somebody who wants to really engage in the, in the way that people nowadays engage, which is not just let's go watch this and maybe we'll, I'll send you an email, you send me an email, but let's actually create something new out of this. And the question becomes, how can we enable that as much as possible while balancing it with what people are talking about here? So I, that conversation is already well underway. Uh, I thought it would be a shame to not have to show Charlie's own work in this regard and uh, throw that into the mix of, of how the conversation will proceed. Thanks, Regardless of what uh, 
what, what the disclaimer or the, or, the, or the assertion of copyright is at the end of a given mm -hmm. piece of video, like a text, somebody, somebody with the requisite technical know-how is going to find a way, I mean, if they're compelled to do so, if they're, if they're impelled to do so, they're going to find a way to use that. And, and, and parody is a protected use, so they could take it, they could take things out of context, they could flip it around, they could do a, they could do a machinima and second life of it. And no, no, no matter what the font size of that copyright assertion is at the end, it's still, in a sense, there are public uses for this. Material. Absolutely, as well as a, a short quotation. However, yeah. uh, that, if, if it were a short quotation from something Hollywood does, they might well send a cease and desist. And then you'd have to decide how far you want to proceed with it. Um, and and I, I doubt that you would send a cease and desist or something. I think the biggest the biggest downfall of if someone took one of our productions and made a parody of it, I think the worst thing that can happen from our perspective is that then people would not sign that release and would not allow us in the future to record. But that's what I see as the biggest downfall of it, is that people would stop allowing us to record in the future based on what someone did. It seems like, you know, sociologically speaking, the more relevant you make um, experiences like this, the more likely that kind of thing's going to happen. You know, I mean, when I was in the library here, we, I mean, things that we published carried the very same assertion: copyright, presidential fellows, etc. We never, in practice, um, sent cease and desist letters to anybody because nobody really cared. <laughs> you know, I mean, or the people who care were people who were making appropriate fair use of the material who wanted to use it in ways that we were comfortable with, you know. But if, if these kinds of forums open up and really matter to people, they're, they're going to matter to people. I mean, one, of the, one of the objectives and one of the goals uh, both of us and I think of Charlie Nelson is to use this stuff subversively. Okay, so, so, so I mean, the point is, you know, so that's right. So the point is you get it in people's hands. Uh, you, you presume that you've done an adequate job of uh, conveying, the, you know, what you think of as the kind of moral or political or, or issue, and you put it out there and you let people run with it. And and it's right. I mean, you know, the more the more use it gets out there, in a way, the better. I mean, I, that, so I mean, I think that's in the ideal world, yes. And and and, and in a way, the more subversive, the better. Yeah. Uh, so you do want pointers back to your your own. Sorry, in that in that use as it happens. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I I think I maybe disagree. You know, I I have a boss. <laughs> I, I you know, that you, and, and he might want it to come back more than I do. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the point is to get the stuff out there, to, to get the subversion happening, and you know, not necessarily care about the credit or or, or the amount or, 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 or kind of where it's from. Uh, so it's our job to produce the kind of the quality that that would in fact. You know, you know, provoke somebody to, to, to take in the music. So that would constitute, in your view, part of the conversation, even if it wasn't the part you were participating in. I, I think so. I mean, I it'd, be, it'd be interesting to me, I'll, I'll be quiet after this, but it'd be interesting to me for something like uh, uh, an experience like this, as, a, as an after conference in a way, to invite people. To, to do sort of mashups, to to, yeah. to you know to invite maybe some specific people, but also throw it open and say, what can you do with this? What can you tell us about it? 
and people who weren't part of it to begin with, so they bring that fresh perspective. But I mean, I think one of the things that you should know too is that we are trying, in fact, to, and working with folks to try to, to create some curriculum out of this for uh, really for, for, for one grades one through twelve, but, mm -hmm. and, and and one of the, you know, and to do that, you really have to to do some work. I mean, it's not going to be this three-hour business. And one of the ways to do that is to put it in their hands and say, what can you do with this? You know, right. um, and then they're learning not only kind of technological stuff, but they learn the content and, and, and start to care about it in a different way. So, I mean, I think that's, that, that's, that's a really important use of it uh, to teach a lot of Just another, another wish list item is that this stuff should go into some kind of preservation repository. I mean, some place where people are focused on trying to make sure it doesn't go away over time or become obsolete, technically obsolete. Um, when you say that, can you be more specific? Preservation. Well, I'm not saying you should go into the libraries and repository. Yes, it should. In digital form that will last. Is, or, 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 the library or has a digital institutional repository. It should go into the Harvard archives. Um, which is where I'm from. Um, and I think, you know, in any number of formats, whether digital or, you know, all the variety of materials that were created um, at the meeting, including that should go in for long-term preservation, which is, I think, you know, I think you were mentioning archives earlier. There's two sides to it. You know, part of this archives is archives as long-term repositories, so that 20 years from now, at another anniversary. Yeah, so, so we can look at this and get some different context on it, repurpose it 20 years from now. So future-proof repositories, in other words, that where the format right. won't change in a way that no one can read with whatever machine exists 20 years from now. Right, well, I mean, you know, yes, the archives has a responsibility for yeah. migrating it forward. I have some old floppy disks that I know have good stuff on them. Yeah. Too late. What's the second point? The second point, I think, you know, archives very often are seen as places where things just get put into storage and no one right. use them. Um, and that's not the case. You know, in a lot of repositories now, um, there are different ways to push this out. You know, cataloging is a simple one. You know, just letting people know it's there. But a lot of institutions are creating institutional repositories and other ways through archives to make it accessible and to control it a little bit. So public repositories. Most archives are public repositories. They're not because they're unique, because yeah. they have unique material. Right. Okay. Um, at the Kennedy School, they have a uh, forum series where they have world-class speakers. And they record all of that. And it seems to me that uh, many of these, if not all of them, are bona fide news events. Now, can you exercise the same kind of control over something that's an actuality, a news event? When Particularly if you don't edit it, then you're not providing something that's unique that you're adding to control it. Great, you asked that question because we're in the middle of something right now that's that's horrendous in my opinion. That is that uh, several of the cable news networks putting on these presidential press conferences that they call debates with the candidates um, are flatly refusing to make available to many to other people what's there except through their own streaming mechanism if that whereas others like CNN have decided it's going to be in the public domain that they will retain the copyright for what they produce but there anyone can use it in any way so it's it's, it's a very apropos question people do control uh, news Larry Lessig has a story about trying to get in a uh, someone trying to get a quote 
of President Bush from an NBC interview, and NBC refused. So, two things. One, just to answer your question, if you if you film the event yourself, then you know, then of course you have control. And so, like with the magazine, the, from the Harvard Magazine, we're covering commencement, and so we can't just take a web, you know, we can't directly take the content from television. You know, and say that that's ours and repost on the web without going through hoops. But we can't just show up and plug in and get the audio directly from. Um, uh, they have billing plug in and get the audio, and you can always set up our own camera and everything. So that's an example where you can. But I, I really wanted to ask a question about the archives, the Harvard archives. Um, is there a way to like? Do you provide a permanent URL for? This or is it more archiving where you can come and request it eventually and maybe get it physically? It would depend on the format. I mean, eventually you probably would have a permanent URL for it, um, but you would have to negotiate with the donor. Um, you know, if you if they had agreements with the people who spoke that they didn't want this out there publicly, you know, to be used in any particular way for X number of years, we have to abide by that agreement. It, I think what he's getting at, if you are going to have things in public, one of the things that people learn is permanent links mm -hmm. right, yeah, so are essential yes, for, gotcha. for that stuff. So that, yeah. the, the, that way it'll just always be there where, where it was. That's one of the uh, principles of these institutional repositories that are being created. They have, uh, for instance, at Northeastern, we use the handle system, mm -hmm. which creates a permanent URL so that it, it'll be there forever, people can cite it, they can find it. If only newspapers would Just point of information, I guess, clarification is the library already runs something called our digital repository service, which is library-sponsored materials. So may or may not, this might or might not qualify, but it might qualify more for an institutional repository, but we, per, we maintain persistent URLs to objects that are deposited into that repository. Okay. The same model could be expanded to handle an institution. So let's bring it back to their project and how, how are we going to help them Use that to continue the conversation. Uh, well, you have you, your hand has been up for it. Yes. Well, actually, coming back to that um, and thinking about this original question of how you take this rich repository and think about how you extend the life of the conference and potentially build communities around it. Um, so, my question is really: there, there are different sets of concerns. There's a concern for the people who contributed material. How will this be used? There's a concern for users um, of, of whether it's credible, you know, how it's been constructed and put together. And so, um, you know, I'm wondering about the assumption that there will be a community of users and that that, that community will develop its standards and, and impose them in some way or not. And, you know, how do you know if you're looking at something that's satire or that has an educational purpose? And, Something to what I just I'm sorry. Okay. To what extent can you influence that by establishing some, you know, intentionally building a community and building it around some criteria for for use and for annotation and editing, like like witness, for example. Well, I think one thing, if you're going to release things into the public, I think you almost have to release things into the public. I don't think you can, but. You know, you have to do this, you can't do this. I think you have to just release but it. I don't mean necessarily controlling the use, but influencing particular uses. So there may be people who are reimagining and creating yeah. satire and you know, doing other kinds of things, but if you 
are trying to intentionally extend the life of the conference and the usefulness of that, are there ways that you can influence that? that but that's a really good segue to something that really is really well, One thing I just wanted to draw up is that we are both, we as Herbs and Bergman are both doing that could potentially answer your question, but we're doing it different ways. Is the media services right now are looking into it? It probably will be a year or two off. Is to get a media management system in. What that will be is it will be an archive of all of our media that can be searched, that you can put in a keyword, and all everything that is relevant to that will pop up. You can pick this and say, oh, I want this five minutes, burn it to a DVD. I want this. I want two minutes of that. So that's the idea that you will be able to search everything you have and take from what you want. But the difference between ours and what the Berkman Center is looking into is ours is going to be, there's going to be a lot of rules where not everyone can burn and edit. Where the Berkman Center is looking at an open source where you know anyone can search, anyone can take, am I right in this? So they're, they're different, but the idea is to take everything that we have and give it and show it to the community and say, here, this is what we have. Come look. Um, copy it. You know, take two minutes from this and, and do with it what you want. That's the idea. With the law school, of course, we won't be just throwing it all out there to the public. Um, but if, again, the, uh, I think it was GBH came to us and said, we're doing a documentary. Do you have footage on this? And we were basically like, maybe. We didn't really have a way of looking back over all the years of everything that we have. And that's what we want to get to. So we can say, hold on just a minute, I'll find out what we have and be able to pull it all down. Because I think that's a direction that we're looking at so that people can look at everything they have. And the other thing I'm wondering about is, um, you know, opening it initially. As you were saying, with curriculum development, that's a lot of work. So if it's open initially to a limited community of users that are organized around a certain purpose, and that some of the annotation or potential other uses could be developed that way before you open it more broadly. Right, I mean, I think that, you know, my, my initial take on thinking about sort of that take on, on your question is, I, I think it's a critical one. The question's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of knowledge for what? I mean, what, you know, the community, what what is the community that we see? And I think, on some level, for the curriculum stuff, the way we talk about it is that we believe that the content of the conference and the things that went on should, can and should be used in the public schools to facilitate discussion of race that is far too difficult to have in the public schools today. Uh, and so, uh, the, the work that we, are, that, you know, so to our, that's one, that's one very specific use. Okay, so for instance, with Charlie's video, I would take great exception to one thing. I think he left out the most important phrase in the decision, which was that the black man has no rights that the white man has to respect. Okay? Now, that's not a complicated statement. That's not a difficult statement. That is, in fact, a statement that black people today can understand, that anybody can understand about whether or not people respect rights. And I think that's the issue that comes out of Dred Scott, that's the issue that's alive today, and that's the issue that can, in fact, engage young people, because they understand in very visceral terms what that means. Or they can start to talk about what a right is, what respecting a right is. All the stuff that Kathleen Cleaver was talking about up here, 
So I mean, I, so I mean, it's interesting. I think it's great so, because you know, if I were then going to kind of respond to him, you know, that's what I would do. And so, but so, so I think that. That, that, and that starts to get the community that we want exactly. to generate. That's the dialogue right there. Because yeah. Then you're right. going to comment on, well, you know, that derivative work should include this. No, I'm saying, then we'll go back and change it. No. I mean, that's great. So, 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 so expand on that. How do, you, how do you get a conversation going that, that surrounding this incredible uh, rich material that you've created here, that this amazing thing, should, can, should there be a public conversation on your site going on about what's there? And if so, what, what are, you certainly have the right to set rules, and you would really need to uh, have rules of the road. Why? But, huh? I know, no, I say it louder, but it's a good question. Why? Because conversations that are not moderated, uh, especially about subjects like this turn into absolute flame wars and troll fests and they they they, they turn everyone off. This is I people have a right to, who you invite people into your living room, you have a right to tell them you you will be polite. Several weeks ago David Weinberger in one of his Web of Ideas sessions actually took that on as a concept. Uh, is there a need for a, a code of conduct on the web? And uh, it sort of stemmed from a discussion about something that happened to an individual on the web, and you know, it got into cyberstalking and that sort of thing. I, I brought it up just because I think the answer is, by virtue of you owning something, whether it's a website or a blog or whatever, whoever's facilitating the discussion, nobody's going to question the fact that you could take down anything you want. This, you don't even need a code of conduct because, I mean, a statement to that effect because yeah. it's understood, it's yours. That, that was so, a, yeah, that code of conduct thing, which I, I unfortunately got sucked into, <laughs> is, is not, it, the answer is you don't, you know, I don't think bloggers have to subscribe to something like that, but the people who, people who run, people who are hosting conversations, have absolutely a right, and I think in many cases an obligation, to have a rule of the road that says civility will, will prevail. And, and that could be just the one rule you need. You know, and you don't need a big long but disclaimer. But, it, but back to this question: Should there be a? Should the conversation be going on on the, your site about this as part of your community building? Would that be a good tactic? Yes. <coughs> the more the uh, site owner exercises control over content through editing, the more they become a publisher and a different set of standards begin to apply. They're no longer considered a common carrier. And with that uh, great control comes great liability. Yes, it, it, yeah, it if a defamation is published and they miss it, for example, they are also a defamer if it's published. But there's the, that's true, and, and but there's no, there's no increase in liability if you just simply remove stuff. But you, you, then you, you're not defining removal as editing. Um, the courts have not. Where do they draw the line? If edit, let, editing. I mean, you can take out one word and change the whole meaning of the sentence. That's right, but that's 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 editing as opposed to simply taking off. They have something. They have to take the whole thing. You're not responsible for what someone posts. But you're certainly under no obligation to leave terrible things on your site if right. defamatory or hateful or anything else. That, that's my understanding of the current uh, CDA statute and, and where it's been applied. 
Because I've, I've had to deal with that on my own. So, well, yeah. I know. I, I seem to recall that uh, AOL did get in trouble over that. That you know they they had forums that were moderated, and posts were simply being removed rather than edited. And AOL was ruled to be you know an active publisher in that case and considered you know re responsible for the content. We need. So, yeah, you know, This is a law school. Yeah. Somebody has to know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have something? Well, I was just wondering, um, somebody said earlier, client, you know, our clients, and I just was wondering who, who are the clients and who are the constituencies? Whenever you're trying to target information um, to have a conversation, you have to figure out who you're having a conversation with. So, I mean, that would be my question if I was editing this material, who's my audience for this? From my point of view, my client is whoever asked for it to be recorded. So if a professor asks for it to be recorded, he is the client. If a student has a class recorded because they not come to the class, then the student is my client. So from my point of view, it's whoever approaches me to ask for something recorded. The Berkman Center has a conference, they ask for it to be recorded, they are the client. So but how about client and constituent are two different things. Right. I think you're right. right? And I think they both can who's the client needs to think about who the constituency is, mm -hmm. not not media students. And so you're we're her constituent, but who's yours? We're her client. Yeah. We're her client. So who is oh, the client but, but, circumstance? But, but who is your who is your constituent? Well, I mean, that's that's what we're building. I mean, I think our constituency is the public. Now, I just want to kind of get us to zero in. There's some other stuff. I mean, we want some help from you. So, for instance, as Colin said, this last this Dred Scott conference was designed to lead up to the citizenship conference. All these questions are about citizenship. We actually think that the issue that comes out of the Dred Scott case has a lot to do with citizenship. That's really the nature of the dialogue that we want to be able to facilitate in a very broad way. And as you might have seen, when Kathleen Cleaver talked about citizenship, she talked about defined citizenship as having to do with participation. Remember, it's very, you know, and, and, and that's an important. So, so in some ways, it, you know, we want to do things. The, the, the purpose of, of the next year, for instance, on our website and, and, and what we do is to build this conversation about citizenship leading up to another conference in a year on the topic of citizenship. And uh, so, yeah, so, so in a way, well, I mean, let me leave it at that. that. That's the kind of goal, and that's the kind of the thing that we want to try to think about. How do we do that? Uh, you know, uh, and it's a question not only of kind of how do we manipulate the the, 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 the data, the information, but how do we build that community? Who who, who is best in a best position to get certain kinds of stuff in front of certain audiences? Uh, those are the questions I think that we have. Because the Berkman Center might be our client, but then as soon as we give the material back to them, then they think about their client. Don't be Collins, the Collins Institute. Don't point to that one. Please. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> what I see going on here is that <clears throat> the market is doing a better job in facilitating public discourse than, than the university is. And, and that should be a grave concern for, for the university. I mean, ultimately, you know, we're having conversations about, about what to make public and what not to make public. And, and, and for, you know, for uh, all intents and purposes, you know, YouTube and, is throwing everything up there. 
right? I mean, to, to, to a certain extent. But the, but, the, but the point is, they're doing a better job than the university is. And, and it seems to me that, 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 um, that we have to contend with that as, as a, in a, in a non-profit sector, in, a, in, a, in an area where we you know, tend to claim the, you know, some sort of, um, um, some sort of uh, guidance role in, in how the public takes shape, I think we need to be a little bit more proactive. So in the, in the ideas for them, what would you want them to do? Well, I mean, I, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, I, I would want them to be much more open with their content um, and, and also think about content in a different way. Uh, think about content and not just in the in the um, the video that's recorded, but in all the back channels that are recorded along with that video. Um, this is the discourse that's happening. This is the stuff that is lost to the you know to to uh, you know a digital wasteland. And um, and and this is the stuff that will be useful 20, 30, 40 years down the road um, as as a significant public archive. And um, and you know and that's the sort of thing again that that the that the commercial sector is not doing that at the university. But I think that YouTube is without rules, sorry, as well, because they do have the, their own set of rules. And if you do break them, they will not only pull down that piece of content, but they will pull down everything you've ever posted. No doubt, and I'm not valorizing YouTube at all. I'm just yeah. saying that that um, that that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that in many respects they're doing a better job, you know, and that, that's my only point. I'm not saying that they're doing the, the, the best job, but they're doing it. Because when we do it, we tend to build these silos of, okay, this is our repository. It sounds like, you know, media services, we're going to do one kind, the digital repository for the library. You guys really should be just doing the same one here. Um, you know, and even with the Berkman Center doing their open source, it should all be one bucket and you set and define. I mean, that's the YouTube model, right? One big bucket. I think that's it's nice to. I'm sorry. I'm it's it's nice to think that any piece of media is is so free, but it's really not considering the resources and monies that go into producing that. And if you have somebody who just spent thirty four hundred dollars for a one hour video shoot, and they paid for that, and it's nice for the guy sitting in the back, no, no disrespect, to say you should just throw this up online, but you're really not considering the, the cost and the resources put into such things. But what else, what, what else? I'm sorry, I, I, I think the owner should have that, that right to uh, make that decision, and we try to provide that to our clients to make that choice on their own. And but just to say that this is a valuable piece of information, everybody should be able to have access to it. I'm not sure if it's appropriate for someone outside of that production circle to make those decisions. So I'll be the devil's advocate and say that. Do you measure value based upon what something costs to produce as opposed to the content itself? I mean, I'm a technical person. The reason I say this is because if you look at the television model, the most expensive programming is the uh, commercials. I'm just trying to say there's a monetary value to the production that needs to be considered and the people who are paying for that. And the university intends to monetize it how? How do you plan to get back that monetary? We build back for our services. But if it's been billed back once, then it's been paid for. So I guess the question is... I don't mean you. I'm talking about the, your client. I mean, and ultimately, let me just say, I, mean, I think, I think that there's a question that's been... Your colleague has had for a long time. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, from from our perspective, uh, you know, at the institute, I, I think 
um, the, the, the money is spent, that we spend the $3,400 or whatever we spend toward an end. And, and, you know, and that end is not measured in monetary terms. Now, I'm not speaking for the university. <laughs> we have to answer the university, and there's all kinds of accountable people. You know, you know, just you should understand the way that we are structured is we are what's called a research institute. We don't get money from the university. We pay the university for rent. We pay the university for things. We don't have university money. That's our money. That money comes from the foundations or donors who entrust that money to us to make certain kinds of decisions. That's a long-winded way of my saying we might well consider the $3,400 as an investment in getting stuff out to people who can't afford $3,400 to do it and not look at it as a cost in that way. And so, I mean, so, you know, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think technically once, you know, we've paid $3,400 or whatever, we decide that, you know, we're going to throw it open for free, uh, that's, that, and that serves the purposes that we have in mind, uh, then you know the question in my mind is I want to make sure that when I throw it for free I get back the most that I can from it in terms of the engagement that I want. Okay? That's that's the that's the criterion uh, you know that I'm that, 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 that we want out of it. Can I just distinguish between some of those the, when we use the word community in the title of this? I, I, I'm hearing a couple different things. I like to distinguish between them because there's a community of there's this global community. There's like this idea of this laissez-faire. Throw the content out there. People will magically make stuff out of it. That's fine. But what I'm hearing from you is, in terms of if we're trying to come up with solutions for you, is that there's a different sense of the word community where you're purposefully building a community, and that's a very different objective than what has been the over like the overriding theme of this conference, which is just this theoretical world out there. And whatever you do, there's a lot of interesting problems with that, and whatever you decide to do with that is, is in my mind, a separate question from how will you essentially build a movement between now and next year. And you know that, to build a movement often implies putting in all sorts of labor and effort to get people to follow along with essentially almost like a curriculum. Now, one thing we did for this conference that um, was basically have a series of questions leading up to, the, to here where everybody could put in their questions and I would just throw it out there to the participants here about whether that was an example, an effective example of community building leading up to this conference, yes or no, and whether that might be helpful for your purposes. Yeah, so so it was the community we're talking about, the community you want to create in order to, for your citizenship conference or the community you want to create around what you've already done or some combination? Yeah, and we're more interested in going forward than with what we've done. Yeah, I mean, we, what we've done is, is, is to build towards something. Well, so so we're, we have 15 minutes. Why don't we come up with a few strategies on how they might do that and just sort of make, get some favor. And there's a question to, to the participants here. I'm, I'm curious what their answer is. <laughs> I hope that's open to you. My initial response is that you can think about community in two senses here, and one is just a desire to have a better educated public citizenry, and the other is to build a community of interest around these specific issues and events and the ways that you're exploring them. And, you know, there are some channels that those two concerns have in common, and some might be different. And I think it's more of the 
So, so Gene, Gene said, pointed out that the, this conference has a website where people have put up questions and debated them, and a wiki and a few other things. Is that a, is that a strategy to to recommend? That, that would be one question. Yeah, let's start. Absolutely, I think the conversation is what it's all about, and the whole lesson now of social networking sites and places that are becoming popular and attracting traffic is that people don't want to just go and, and look at a show anymore. They don't want to just go and be impressed. Some people do, but if you really want to get into the mainstream, you have to offer opportunities for conversation. It's another example of what YouTube's doing really well. There was an article in the Times last week about YouTube conversations. Because when people see a video on YouTube they like, they don't just send it to their friends. And they don't just write a comment. A lot of them have cameras built into their computers, and they send a video right back. And it's not as professionally produced as the one they're commenting on, but in the Times article, they mentioned three or four long conversations completely carried out in video snippets, commenting, parodying, adding to, uh, and that's the kind of vital, alive conversation that makes a community work and attracts people yeah. to ideas. I have a video on YouTube that got over half a million hits. And uh, not only are there thousands of comments, but people can favorite it. So every time you put up something else, thousands of people will be alerted to it. I've had people send me videos about my video. Had people send me videos about the video that someone made about my video. And it just goes on and on and on. Might <laughs> that work for some of your, some of the material for your album? I'm watch all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Um, I just think in terms of the wider community, in terms of um, supporting the notion of exposing information to university as a whole. It seems like the part of that can be solved by having policies, such as MIT having open courseware policy. You have to make your stuff open. I mean, any kind of repository into which university or anybody would accept materials and preserve them and store them, make sure they're not going to lose them, could have policies associated with it. It has to be publicly available. And so I think that can be kind of hooked on to that repository concept of it has to be open for someone to take custodianship of it and take care of that material requirement. Yeah. Um, just to kind of respond there, wait, what, what's your name? Gene. Gene. I think Gene was making a really good point that we are, we have been focused so much in this conference and this particular session on, you know, open or not, and thinking about this global community. And I think the reason is that there are these communities that are already built. You know, that the MySpace community, the, I mean, all the big names, that's what we all know, so that's what I'm going to mention. These communities already exist the, the, that people are a part of. And if you put, if whatever way you can connect into an existing network is a good way to get your content out there, is a good way to build a community. And that's, I think that's the first place to go when you're trying to build community is start where there's already something so there. They should but go to these other communities and start talking there as an initial step. As an initial step, yes, certainly. But then if you have, for whatever reason, you want to start your own community um, that's based off of your website, 
um, then we're talking about a, a different sort of tactic. And I guess maybe we could all brainstorm a little on those tactics because that seems to be what they actually want. To do. Yeah, we're talking. We're, we're, we're all different tactics toward the same goal. So, but. Yeah. Right, and I was going to just offer a suggestion along those lines. Yeah. That would be maybe having serialized content where you know every three weeks you add some different content to your website that people can respond to. It's just a suggestion. Building up, just somebody up here was. Just... In my opinion, the, in terms of building community, I think the the use of the word client could be dangerous for my. And the the other thing, but I think you you read uh, because the uh, it's it's it could come on the political activists and and they can offer channels in order to 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 improve the the uh, the uh, extension of the of the project of the initiative. So uh, I I my perception in this country. Uh, is it that there is a gap between uh, scholars and political activists, and it's more or less the same in, in my country and more or less in the rest of the Europe. So uh, we have to work together uh, because uh, it's the, we, we have a very similar goals. So it's, I think it's a great. I think that's all one, and I do think that those are constituencies that we are determined to try to bring together. Right? So and I think you're right with that. There, there is this, this gulf, and, uh, and I do think that one of the goals is to try to create some kind of place where there, they, there can be not only conversation, but then action, active, act, you know, and uh, I, I, Just along those lines, I've been, I've been doing a number of um, conferences in Brazil, and say conference on literacy, for instance, that will include uh, community organizers, people who are building libraries and favelas, uh, uh, publishers, uh, authors, and, and scholars, historians, uh, and and it's it's quite astonishing what kind of um, you know the, just the energy of a of a, of a, a social mashup like that, and what and what can what can come out of it. Um, so I think I think mixing up the community is a really important thing to, to start out with. Um, Which you do at the conference itself, right? So um, you're saying do it ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we need to be clear about what um, what is meant by the term community, um, and and how communities are both inward and outward looking. That that communities are by definition exclusionary. That um, in order to build a sense of community, you need to there needs to be boundaries, and therefore some need to be excluded. But at the same time, communities are exhibitions. Um, and and that in order for that exclusionary community to function correctly, there needs to be people looking onto that community for the people within that community to be able to exhibit what it is that they've done. And it seems to me that that with with digital media, the sort of exhibitionist component of, of community seems is is growing a little bit. And um, but both of those things are necessary. So like in, in YouTube, for instance, while there might be you know a thousand comments or half a million hits, right? So so. And, and, we, and we tend to call that community somehow, even though, you know, by just going to YouTube and looking at something, I'm, I'm not part of a community. I don't feel necessarily like these are my family, but um, but but somehow we, we use that we use that word. But I don't think we would use that word if not for that tight knit group of people 
that are that are actively engaging. Like so, the Wikipedians are making Wikipedia a dynamic place, but most of us are just looking. Um, and and so and so, I think that that we need to consider those things. We need to foster that kind of community, but it doesn't have to be on a massive scale. It could be on a small scale, as long as we're constantly taking into consideration the exhibitionist component to to what it is that we're trying to do. And I think there's a piece of it, and it's interesting in that observation, uh, as you were speaking on it, I, I was thinking about community. The, the, one of the content issues of citizenship, I said, is participation. And, and it's interesting kind of to think about what constitutes participation in what you just said. I mean, it, you know, it, it, is it participatory uh, to type on the keyboard? Is it participatory to make a video of yourself and broadcast uh, You know. Is or and you know and and if so, is that all we're looking for? And I don't think that is all we're looking for. I think that's a, that's a precursor to something. But there's a different kind of activity, uh, I think, that ultimately we would like to encourage and engender that goes beyond that. Uh, and uh, but the question is whether that's the, the kind of way in. You know, uh, it, it is an important one. But the different levels of participation are that are available. Uh, and it's not just going to a conference. It's not just uh, sitting at your keyboard. It's not just voting. <laughs> I mean, like, all these different, you know, you know, but there are lots of different ways. But the point is to make, to, the point of citizenship is to expand the ways in which people can participate. Who, who, who will in the end make that list up of what you think are the things to do? I guess that will be interactive. I mean, I think, we, we, I think our interviewees, I mean, you know, we have an incredible number of ideas coming out of interviews, but I think that we need to open it up to other people. Would you would you consider putting on your site a uh, a way for people to make their own videos answering that question and upload them to your site? Or of course you would screen them, but you would then whoever they are, not people it's okay. You know, one of the uh, responsibilities of a citizen, at least in a democracy, is to become informed so that when they do act uh, in self-government or self-governance. Uh, they make informed decisions. Therefore, to merely sit on the sidelines and lurk and gather information is not to say they're not actively engaged in a citizenship activity. No, I didn't say that, and that's why when she asked the question, I said that the education is the first part. You couldn't have the second part without the first part. You can't, you can't, you have to have an informed citizen, but I, but I, you might say that is in fact the first and most important step. But all I'm saying is that the, specific response to her question where she asked, are you interested in just simply education or are you interested in education for purpose? I think it we're interested in education for purpose, but it starts with education. So I'm not saying that getting the information out there is important for people kind of participating and gathering that information is important. Gathering information is an act and it's a it's a very empowering act. I, I understand that. So I, I don't think I'm you know I mean, you're right. I'm going to okay, we have time for about two more uh, so, go ahead. I was going to say, from, I think Eric had some really great points there. Maybe one one thing you can consider is um, having a tight-knit group of um, people that are developing this community, but not necessarily just a community on what you're doing, but maybe find you know six other organizations that are local in the area or that are based on this, a similar topic. Maybe not your topic. Maybe it's not about the issue that you are doing. But all the related issues, and you have a web brain, you know, you have a, a tight-knit community 
that's similar to what you're doing, and that brings everybody together, rather than you having to host the entire issue. I have to tell you that today, that there's an article in the New York Times that day, uh, by Bob Herbert about some African-American kids who have been harassed and uh, by police, and it, you know, it, it continues to, to haunt me in Britain. And I, I sent it out to a bunch of people. That's about as, that's about as tech savvy as I I sent out to a bunch of people, and I got answers back from people. And, 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 and it was interesting. I felt totally inept, because in point of fact, it was a conversation that I wish I could have extended, put up on the website, and we could have, in fact, started to talk about uh, this issue. And, and, and I think, so I, in that sense, I think that's right. I mean, because to do that, it draws people into our website. It draws people into conversations about the kinds of things that we care about and talk about and, and want other people to care about and talk about. Are there forums on the site? I really don't. It's a summer project. Do they have forums on their site? Yeah. Anyone think not? Okay. Uh, um, again, um, I, I extend the community building um, concept out in the dimension of time as well. And, and as Megan was saying earlier about, about archives, I think I, I, want to, I, I would push to see on any wish list that um, what happens in a conference like this be available down the, the proverbial seven generations, you know, that as much of that material as possible um, be durable so that whatever mashups people do with it now, and whatever conversation is taking place, it, what what happened in the first place here in this community that is the university be uh, be be recoverable and that people 20, 200 years from now can experience it. And the archives, people are working hard on ways to make that happen. And so partnering with that with that element of the university as well, I think is really important. Unfortunately, we're uh, out of. Fine. Uh, do you want any summary? <laughs> I can't summarize anything. I, I, I just appreciate it, you know, everything I've heard. And I, I, again, I, I'm hopeful that over time you all will continue to, in some way, be involved with us. And we'll get the, you know, we're going to work on the website. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated. And this is not our, this is not my thing. So it, 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 it's great to hear, and, and I'd like to be able to to keep hearing from you and have to figure out how we can do it. And I thank the Burton, and I thank you all for putting on and having this conversation. And uh, I just want to add, too, I, I, I really appreciate everything everybody said, because there's obviously a lot of people in the room that are more familiar with what's out there on the internet than some of us. And it's, it, you know, one of the challenges for us, I think, is to take, you know, this small institute right now, which has very limited staff, and, you know, um, you know we don't have you know, a team of people dedicated to sort of figuring out what we can do with all, all this media and all the different angles we can take with the web. And also we have, you know, an institute's mission statement. So how much of, you know, do we, how much of, you know, taking all this information and getting it out there in the ways that are suggested, you know, follows with, follows along with our mission statement or goes against our mission statement in, in certain ways. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the challenges that sort of these small, you know, an organization such as ourselves faces um, is both, you know, manpower, time, um, you know, and sort of, you know, balancing the idea of opening up information, you know, um, as opposed to, um, you know, sort of compromising 
what our mission might be or what furthering it. Um, so I think you know one of the things that would be you know, helpful to come out of this is there's obviously there's so much knowledge out there and so many so many forums and so many opportunities. Um, you know people that are in positions to sort of help smaller operations. You know and such as all these different student organizations and all these different small research programs and groups. You know just within the context of the law school. How you know how can we all take that next step together? And just to mention, if anyone's interested, I have a couple copies of our program from the conference and uh, of our uh, citizenship report that we issued at the conference. So this is available online as well. But Thank you all for coming. It's really interesting. Thank you.